Hello everyone, my name is Mike Estefan, and I thank you for joining me today on this month's deep dive episode on the EM Clerkship Podcast. Today's topic is going to be on cardiac tamponade. Before we begin, I just have a quick word from our sponsors, Pearson Rabbits Insurance. If you've been listening to our recent content, by now you should know how important own occupation disability insurance is. In fact, I would be willing to go out on a limb and say it's borderline irresponsible to not have own occupation disability insurance if you are a physician. The other day, I met up with Stephanie Pearson virtually to discuss disability insurance options for myself. I have to tell you guys, she is on a whole other level. There was just so much terminology that I hadn't heard of or didn't understand, but Stephanie took the time to break it down into a language that I could easily comprehend. She was also just... I don't know, overall, an amazing human being. I'll spare you the details, but it was abundantly clear that she was looking out for my best interest and not her own. And she really went the extra mile for me. I know that we get paid by Pearson Rabbits to advertise on their behalf, but guys, I really mean it when I say Stephanie Pearson is the real deal. I would be giving her my endorsement regardless of episode sponsorship. Please check out her company, Pearson Rabbits, by going to www.pearsonrabbits.com and schedule a consultation with Stephanie or one of her colleagues today. Now, back to cardiac tamponade. So let's start with a super basic anatomy refresher. Within your mediastinum, you have your heart. Your heart is covered by this fibrous coating called the pericardium, also known as the pericardial sac. Now, in between this fibrous pericardial sac and the heart itself, there's a potential space where fluid can accumulate. When fluid accumulates in this potential space, we call it a pericardial effusion. Now, let's define cardiac tamponade. Cardiac tamponade is a physiological state in which fluid within the pericardial sac impairs filling of the right-sided chambers of the heart which leads to a drop in cardiac output and eventually shock and death. This all starts when a patient develops a pericardial effusion. This fluid surrounding the heart is trapped between the heart itself and the thick fibrous pericardial sac, which can't really stretch that much. Because it can't stretch, this fluid exerts a pressure on the heart. And when this pressure exerted by the fluid becomes higher than the pressure inside the chambers of the heart itself, it causes those chambers to collapse and impairs filling of the heart, leading to the physiological state of tamponade. Now, if you go back to physiology, you know that the right-sided heart pressures are much lower than the left-sided heart pressures. So it's the right side that collapses. And when the right side collapses and there's no filling of the right side, then no blood can get to the left side, which means no blood can get to the rest of the body. And that's cardiac tamponade in a nutshell. Now, let's dive deep. Let's rewind back to pericardial effusions. So there are many different reasons that a pericardial effusion can occur. Infectious is probably the most common. It's usually viral in the United States, but worldwide, HIV and TB are very common causes. Rheumatologic conditions are another common cause, such as in lupus, sarcoidosis, vasculitis, etc. Malignancy is another somewhat common cause of pericardial effusions. 
And then there are a few less common causes, and those include uremia, for example, in your end-stage renal patient who missed a week of dialysis and their BUN is 150, that can cause a pericardial effusion. Um, myxedema coma, which is essentially severe life-threatening hypothyroidism, can cause a pericardial effusion. And then both blunt and penetrating trauma to the chest can cause pericardial effusions. Lastly, sometimes even aortic dissections can cause pericardial effusions. If the dissection is severe enough that it ascends all the way to the aortic root and dissects into the aortic root, it can cause a hemorrhagic effusion. Okay, so now we know why people get pericardial effusions. And let's say our patient has a pericardial effusion. My next question for you guys is why do some patients with pericardial effusions go into tamponade and others are just totally fine, totally asymptomatic, normal vital signs, etc. The most important factor here is the speed at which the effusion accumulated. The volume of fluid in the effusion is much less important than how quickly it accumulated. It's almost kind of similar to sodium derangements, where the absolute value of the sodium isn't as important as how quickly it rose or dropped. So as I stated before, the pericardial sac is a very fibrous tissue and it does not have much elasticity. If even a small amount of fluid accumulates rapidly into this potential space, then the pericardial sac will not be able to stretch much and a high pressure will be generated, usually leading to tamponade. If you guys are looking for absolute volumes here, based on a couple papers that I read online, Volumes of 150 to 200 cc's of fluid in the effusion, if accumulated rapidly, can lead to tamponade. However, when you have a pericardial effusion that develops over a long period of time, let's say weeks to even up to a month, that pericardial sac can stretch at that point, as long as the accumulation is slow. And therefore, these patients can hold a lot of volume within that potential space without going into tamponade. It's actually kind of crazy. I've seen pericardial fusions that had more than a liter of fluid, but the patient was not in tamponade. And the reason being is because that fluid accumulated over a really, really long period of time and allowed for the pericardial sac to stretch out and accommodate that fluid. Okay, so now you know what tamponade is and how it happens. The next question is how do we diagnose it? So I want to break this down into diagnosis on exams and then diagnosis in real life, because the two are completely different, just like most things in medicine, right? The things you learn on the boards and for your exams aren't exactly true in real life. So let's start for your exams. For your exams, there are three things you should know for diagnosing cardiac tamponade. The first is called Beck's triad. And this is a triad of clinical signs and symptoms that when all put together, indicate cardiac tamponade. Beck's triad consists of hypotension, distant heart sounds, and jugular venous distension. Don't forget Beck's triad. It will be on your exams. The second thing you should know is something called pulsus paradoxus. Basically what this is, is normally, in a normal physiologic state, you and I, right now, your systolic blood pressure should drop about 5 to 10 millimeters of mercury during inspiration only. Okay? Pulsus paradoxus is when 
there is an exaggerated response to this physiologic effect, and your systolic blood pressure drops by more than 10 millimeters of mercury. Have fun measuring that in a busy emergency room. It's not going to happen. And lastly, the third finding you need to know for your exams is something called electrical alternans on EKG. You should definitely Google what this looks like because it is very high yield. It will show up. Basically, what you see on EKG is your QRS complexes have alternating amplitudes. So one will be really small, the next will be really big, the next will be really small, the next will be really big, and so on and so on. And what's happening here physiologically is that this is representing a large pericardial effusion. It doesn't necessarily mean tamponade, but it means there's a large effusion. Because what's happening is the heart is beating, and it'll beat once, and because it's in this large pool of fluid, it'll change position, and then it'll beat again, and then it'll change position and beat again. And every time it changes position, it changes the distance from the electrodes, and the electrical conduction has to take a slightly different path for the machine, the EKG machine, to interpret it. So you get varying amplitudes with each beat. So again, to summarize, for your exams, you need to know Beck's triad, which is hypotension, distant heart sounds, and jugular venous distension. You need to know the phenomenon of pulses paradoxics, which is a drop in systolic blood pressure more than 10 millimeters of mercury during inspiration, and you need to know to recognize electrical alternands on EKG. Now in real life, the diagnosis is not straightforward. In real life, the diagnosis is made based on a combination of the patient's clinical presentation as well as findings on cardiac ultrasound. And usually the ultrasound findings hold way more weight than the clinical findings. Clinically, these patients usually come in complaining of dyspnea and maybe some chest pain. They can also have any of the symptoms in Beck's triad, again, being hypotension, JVD, and muffled heart sounds. Or they can have none of these findings. Now you might be thinking, but wait, Mike, how can you have a normal blood pressure and still be in cardiac tamponade? The answer here is multifactorial. First of all, if we rewind back to the definition of cardiac tamponade, it's a physiological state where there is some degree of impaired filling of the right side of the heart. Now, somebody in severe cardiac tamponade with no filling on the right side will obviously be in florid shock. Now, in the beginning stages of cardiac tamponade, there might be only a slight decrease in right-sided filling, and therefore a slight decrease in cardiac output. Now, the body is miraculous and is able to compensate through some pretty deranged physiology at times. So all those catecholamines that start surging and increase your heart rate and increase your systemic vascular resistance, these can mask cardiac tamponade. Okay, so just by having a normal blood pressure does not mean the patient is not in tamponade. Okay, now let's talk about the ultrasound findings because this is where the money is, to be honest. There is one specific finding on ultrasound for cardiac tamponade that you need to know. And that is right ventricular collapse during diastole. Let me say this again. Right ventricular collapse during diastole is highly suggestive of cardiac tamponade. And pro tip, if you do not know on your ultrasound when systole is and when diastole is, 
During diastole, the ventricles are being filled, which means the mitral valve and the tricuspid valve should be open. So if the right ventricle is collapsed while the tricuspid or mitral valve is open, that is collapsed during diastole, and that is tamponade until proven otherwise. Now, that is the most specific finding. However, there are other more sensitive findings. One of the most sensitive findings for detecting cardiac tamponade on ultrasound is what we call a plethoric IVC, meaning inferior vena cava. So usually, for you and I, our vena cava will collapse and expand as we breathe in and out. And it makes sense, right? As we decrease our intrathoracic pressure, we draw blood into the heart, and it should collapse the IVC because we're drawing that venous blood into the heart. And then as we exhale, we are increasing our intrathoracic pressure and pushing that blood back, and so the IVC should expand. Now, a plethoric IVC is an IVC that is very plump and does not change with respiration. And what that is indicative of is that there's some kind of obstructive process upstream from the IVC that's not allowing blood to flow. There are many conditions that can cause a plethoric IVC, which is why this is not a specific finding. It is sensitive. Heart failure will show a plethoric IVC, a massive pulmonary embolism, a tension pneumothorax, etc., etc. The important part is the lack of a plethoric IVC usually means the patient isn't in tamponade. Now, you could have a scenario where the patient is extremely hypovolemic, and so their IVC is collapsed no matter what, and they can still be in tamponade. But for the most part, if you do not have a plethoric IVC, the patient most likely isn't in tamponade. Okay, so once you've diagnosed tamponade, the next step is to treat it. These patients are usually preload dependent, so I would always start with a fluid bolus, but some of these patients will actually worsen with fluids, so keep a close eye on them. If their blood pressure starts to drop while you're giving them fluids, stop immediately. Now, you can use vasopressors to buy you time if the patient is critically ill and unstable, but by no means are vasopressors the answer here. The definitive treatment is a pericardiocentesis, which we went over in the episode of the game that was preceding this deep dive. I'll link a video to the procedure in the show notes, but basically, you just find the largest fluid pocket on ultrasound, and you stick a giant needle into it and drain as much as you can. It's actually pretty amazing. Now, I've never seen this in person, but I've been told stories of people who have coded with cardiac tamponade, and just by removing 20-25 cc's of fluid from their effusion, they regained pulses and came back to life, essentially. It doesn't take much to flip these patients in and out of tamponade. Okay, that was a lot of information I just threw at you guys for a short deep dive. I normally don't dive into the basic sciences too much here, but I think tamponade is one of those interesting conditions where if you know the anatomy, you know the pathophysiology, it really helps understand the clinical presentation, how you make the diagnosis, and how you treat it. To summarize briefly, cardiac tamponade is a physiological state where a pericardial effusion causes collapse of the right-sided chambers of the heart, which results in poor filling and thus a drop in the cardiac output. 
For your exams, you need to know about Beck's triad, that is hypotension, JVD, and muffled heart sounds. You also need to know about pulsus paradoxus, and you must be able to recognize electrical alternands on an EKG. Now clinically, these patients are usually presenting with dyspnea, and the key to diagnosis is right ventricular collapse during diastole on ultrasound. Treatment includes an initial fluid bolus, followed by a pericardiocentesis. And that's all I have for you today. Please, 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 please send me emails. I love hearing from you guys. I'll get back to you, I promise. My email is mike at emclerkship.com. Until next month, keep working hard, keep studying, and be sure to enjoy your shift.